Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. In truth, my story is very similar and very different from many of the individuals that come to Pride. I have been to 55 treatment centers. 55. And um, I came to Pride desperate, um, looking for a solution that I just couldn't find. Obviously, I was reaching for something that I couldn't find. Um, But I was also an LGBT man whose uh, meth-sex relationship had been ingrained as a young kid. I I grew up thinking that meth-sex brought me to an intimacy with others that I couldn't find with individuals like in my family and in our community. And I was um, indoctrinated in a very actually positive way into the countercultures of LGBTQ life. And it was methamphetamine that drove me to the idea that I could be free, uninhibited, very much like the Stonewallers, right? Where those individuals were able to express themselves in an open way. I grew up in a very entitled family and I didn't feel, I felt restricted and trapped. And part of my story was that methamphetamine was able to break that fear complex down. And any drug that can do that is one that I'm going to recidivize over and over again. And Pride Institute allowed me to really battle the idea of both that fear of what I couldn't do and also the LGBTQI plus spectrum aspect of my life. So it was really my identity plus the way that I was thinking about it. Eddie, you mentioned 55 treatment centers. Um, When did you start first going to treatment? Uh, Let's start there. I have another follow-up question to that, but when was like your first bout with treatment? Well, my first treatment center was actually in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was 20. I just got out of a relationship. Um, I was a high school history teacher at the time. I was 28 or so years old, and I went to a place in, in Las Vegas called Desert Hope. Okay. And... How did you stick with it? I typically look at that question in a negative fashion. Mm -hmm. However, I think that the big thing that came across for me there was I had two conversations, right? I was enabled by what I believed to be uh, the safety of treatment. So it felt safe for me to come back from homelessness. However, there came a time when I really wanted to live a different life. And I approached Todd Kanati. And um, my dad, actually, and the two of them, I said, very particular, I said a very particular thing. I said, you cannot allow me to come back again. Mm. And I said, do not, do not accept my application. Todd denied it about four to five more times after that. And I walked the streets of Minneapolis for about five years. And it was that, and it was those boundaries that were set because of my desperate, because of my desperation to get sober Um, with my dad and Todd that uh, helped to really fortify the idea that I could get up and do this thing. That's amazing. Yeah, Um, I'm very blessed. And then as far as you mentioned growing up, like this meth and sex relationship that you had developed from an early age, um, what was your introduction to meth and how did you get started using it? (laughs) I was in Washington, D.C. 
And I had just been, I had just been so like most of us who come in with shame, with with a shame issue, right? Um, I was rejected by a fraternity that I really wanted in my undergraduate school. And so I decided like anybody who doesn't make rash decisions, I'm just going to leave the school. (laughs) Why would I want to do that? So I went to the University of Maryland and I was down there. I was at the time taking uh, the old hydroxy cut uh, to lose weight and do all these things. I had lost all this weight. And this guy decided on the old gay.com to invite me over. And it was one of those experiences that in looking back, I can see the power of what it was because this man was wealthy. He was of a, a, a black and brown origin. He was somebody who I was not only attracted to, but admired for things that he had rather than who he was. And he treated me really kindly. So that combination of things was basically a fortification of reward at that point. The reward was what we were doing and the way that I was feeling. And the fortification was all of those mixtures of feelings that were coming between us. And I'll tell you what, it was a, in, in looking back, it was a very good time as well. And I looked to that, unfortunately, as the first time. So if I was feeling bad later on, I know how to get out of this because that first experience was so bad. It's not like alcohol where I'd throw up everywhere. You know what I mean? I was like, <laughs> see you later. This one was very different. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you mentioned how it was to try and almost like your use was at that point trying to find intimacy, which I think a lot of times people think meth users pick it up because of fear of intimacy. I need to be high to have sex. And so I wonder if you can, if you have any takes on that or if you can expand on that. Yeah. um, Unfortunately, fear blocks our love language, right? There's a there's a very clear block of what fear does. And also fear has a way of encapsulating shame, right? Fear is the weapon of shame. It's shame's armor, right? It keeps us very safe. So when you grow up in a traumatic household or, you know, in any sort of attachment issue, right, what we begin to find and I began to find primarily was that my parents at at the times that they needed to care for me, couldn't do it in the way that a son needed. I I didn't get that. Right. And so I developed all these issues relating to intimacy, right? My intimacy was, I wanted to attach. I wanted to latch on. I wanted to save the world. I wanted to be there for them. I wanted to rescue them. So what ended up happening conversely was as I got older, the family that I tried to save were the only ones I would try to save. Right. And so then I grew very isolated And what meth allowed me to do was it allowed me just to drop fear for a minute and attach back to what I defined as love, what I saw as love, right? And that was hugely powerful because everything on the outside protected me from you, right? My parents and my family and everybody else said, you're going to be hurt. But once meth got that, there was this guy inside, this kid inside who was like, I'm free. I'm out. I'm, I'm a rebel. I'm going to do this. I mean, I was the guy who was getting great grades, a master's degree, teacher of the year, all of these things in the state of Maryland, right? And all I wanted to do was be free. All I wanted to do was live the life that I was on a farm, running around with cows, doing whatever. Meth, the, the, the dopaminergic reaction that came with meth said, I'll take that all away from you. Almost like a genie in a bottle. I will take all of that away from you and you can be a kid again. Who wouldn't want that? I think something that's really interesting about your story is that you did, you know, one teacher of the year, you have all these like 
things, I guess, supporting you. And it really just shows that this disease can really happen to anyone at any time. Something I, I've heard your story before and something I found really interesting is that when you came in to treatment the first time or the first few times, you know, you were like, I am not like anyone else here. These are not my problems. My problems are your not, not your problems. I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to that about that experience and what helped you like overcome that mindset. The lies we tell ourselves, right? Um, that is a big one, right? So we, I defined myself by my story. My story was the only story that existed because I, I had to feel important. I had to be important to somebody. And the only importance that I could give to somebody is what I did. The story that I told myself was that I was teacher of the year. I was award-winning. I was a salutatorian or whatever I was close to in my master's degree. Who gives a shit? But the thing was, is that that was the thing that I was going to connect somebody with. So when I would hear somebody's story, all I was listening to were the facts. I was like, oh yeah, you went here. Oh gosh, you have this many parents. You're a single mom. (laughs) I can't relate to that. Then there was a part of me that started getting ready to be sober. And I started without the codependent attachment response. I started hearing the sorrow, the morose, the, the melancholy, the, the despondence, those feelings. And all of a sudden, without a reaction, I started going, oh, I relate to that feeling, right? I relate to what they're going through, not where they've been. I will not be able to understand somebody's story, nor do I think I can understand my own, right? Because it's a story that I've told myself through webs of, of uh, lines of dialogue, right? But the way that they looked and the way that they were feeling, I had felt that way before. I couldn't find it. I couldn't pinpoint it. But what I knew is, is that the person who grew up with no family, didn't get an education, who has no teeth, who is an alcoholic, was somebody who felt just like I did, alone, unlovable, not enough. And if you knew them, you were going to run away. That was how I felt for my entire childhood. And I didn't even know it. Yeah, it's interesting. Brene Brown um, basically talks about shame and guilt and how guilt is a really useless emotion and shame is a very productive one. Now, productive, not in a positive way, of course, but shame really does like make you do things and really encourages you to do them, whether good or bad. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about like the shame and secrecy that you held being a teacher um, and how that, that impacted like this double life, I'm sure you were probably living. Yeah. So I, I grew up with a family of individuals who were, I perceived to have it all. My, I grew up in a family of professional athletes, number ones in their classes from Georgetown and dentistry school and all these things. Right. I went to college and I call myself like the little gay kid that could, right? Decided that he was going to go to Washington, D.C. and and intern with a lobbyist firm. And I didn't really want to, right? It wasn't something that I enjoyed. And so I wanted to be a teacher. I came out in my undergrad and I was out and proud and doing a lot of advocacy work with some of my friends. Um, And then, and this was because of where he was at trying to protect me at the time. I said, I'm going to be a teacher. And my dad said, I didn't pay all this money for you to be uh, a teacher, Right. And grateful today for the education that I received from my family, also realizing that that was a moment that I went back in the closet and decided to live the shame response. What I could have done from what Brene Brown mentions, what I could have done is say, oh, I guess I'm not enough to to be a gay teacher. What I could have done is use what she would probably call motivation, right? To say, 
screw that. No, actually I am and be out. What I ended up being was a high school basketball coach, you know, for one of the best schools in the country as an LGBTQI plus man. And I didn't say anything. And so on the weekends, what was I doing? I was living the secret life that inside I needed to live. So when the ball dropped on Friday night and I'm done, I'm out the door. Like I'm, I'm in Washington, D.C., an hour and a half away from my house, having sex and using meth. Well, it makes sense, right? I, I, I hid from my students who I finally just heard from. And this is, by the way, about 10 years since the last time I spoke to my students a few day, a few weeks ago. Um, you know, how much I meant to them and how much they mean to me, right? But they didn't know any of this stuff. They didn't know that I was an HIV positive advocate or an HIV positive man or somebody who was able to like overcome being LGBTQI plus in a Catholic school. They had no idea. It's not that I wish they did, but what Shane said is that I needed time, right? Shane said that I needed moments in time to reflect on what it was telling. I believe in one of my thoughts is I believe shame is love. Shame and love are crafted from the very same thing. And I believe love leaves breadcrumbs, right? In our life story, we're going to find her again, right? But we have to go through some pretty trying times. I believe shame is the level above love, right? Shame is the place that says you're not enough. If you believe it, then you'll turn around and love sits behind, right? But when you take that, you take fear away and shame's armor just drops away and we let it go we're back to where we were when we were born, right? We're back into that loving space again. I think the thing that is so fascinating about what you said is love and shame being related because I think with every good thing, there's a contrary bad thing that holds the same amount of weight and what can bring us down at any moment. What are some things that you do on a daily basis to take that shame voice and like place distance between you and it? How do you navigate that today? I do it. There's only one way. Shame, shame is shame. Shame is a fallacy of language, right? Shame doesn't exist. So here, the, the way that I th- guess I see it is that shame doesn't exist. The words "I am enough" are trauma responses in my brain. The only thing that exists is what fear uses to keep it, and that's fear, right? Fear brings up those stress hormones right into our bodies, and the only way that I do. Yesterday, I got on my bike. And I'm I'm breathing so hard. I mean, I'm and you know what comes in my brain? Fear brings up stress. Then I can hear shame say, I can't make that hill. Mm. I can't do it. And now today, for some reason, my legs go, am I allowed to swear on this thing? My my fear got my shit. I mean, my my the love part of me goes, fuck that, get up the hill. And it goes right through it. And I'll look back, I'll curse, I'll, I'll. yell i'll scream i'll blame somebody else but i did it i did it and the thing is is that those messages if they're attached to fear today while they may be intense i just do it meaning if i'm gonna if i'm gonna lift 225 pounds uh, if i'm gonna lift 225 pound bench press the big thing for me was going to applebee's in my early recovery i'm not joking i broke down probably 74 times at that register because if you want to learn how, to, how it is to be rejected, then go work it as a server, right? And I did it in a bar of all places, right? Well, Shane said to me, like, don't go ask for, uh, don't go ask for the tip. Don't go ask for anything that you need because they're going to reject you. I was being rejected all the time. And guess what? I just did it. And all of a sudden it just started to melt away. 
Yeah, uh, we both are former servers, so we can relate to that on a <laughs> level. Uh, we, I, I always say everybody should be a server for like two or three years. You learn so much. Um, you ain't lying. Oh, God. Uh, as far as like one thing that I can really relate to on a personal level is when you were talking about the desire to be successful. It's almost as if queer people do this to like the like it's this idea of like the more successful I am, the less queer I will be. Right. Mm-hmm. I'll show Helpful. you that I'm not the little gay boy. Like I have a master's degree. I have the, like, you know, like I really think it does. And maybe that's oversimplifying it. But do you have any thoughts on that? No, I don't think I think that it's not only I got goosebumps because it was so well said. Right. The best little boy in the world. Right. We are genetically we are genetically predisposed to shame. Right. This doesn't come necessarily from our families, I believe. Right. Our families carry it with them because it was given to us. But those of us who grew up before the the age, uh, the the age of like more um, I'll call it acceptance. Right. Believed intrinsically that we were bad people. Either we're going to hell or whether they're not accepted. Society told us that, right? So how do we get by that? We have to be the best little boys and girls and women and them in the world. That's the way we do it. So I was, I went to college for voice. I went to college to go with a political science degree. I got a scholarship for voice. I ended up doing this and that and this and that. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, Eddie, you are so talented. Well, no shit. I have to be talented in order to convince you that I'm not a horrible person. Uh, and yes. it's a revolving wheel of shame and fear. And the thing is, is that working as a server at Applebee's, my boss was 19. Mm-hmm. And what do you think all those master's degree things to say? Oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to do this. You can't do that. You're, you're so much better than this. I live in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, where I think there's about three gay people in this town. And it's also one of the most inclusive places that I didn't give a chance to. Yeah. Right. Those were all things that I said because of the way that I was raised that couldn't happen. I couldn't be if somebody making $18 an hour is a suicide de-escalator, right? I had to have the money, fame, and fortune. Well, that's just because I'm probably healing that little kid inside that was inter- that had internalized homophobia. He probably now accepts himself for who he truly is, which is love. Totally. And then even just a little bit of what I got from what you were saying is this idea I feel like growing up, queer people become readily aware, like even from like the earliest age of like seven, eight of the social hierarchy that exists, because it's like, okay, I can't be on the bottom. I need to like, like for me, it was like, okay, latch onto the cool girls because the cool girls are going to guide you through. If they're nice to you, the cool guys will be nice to you. Good point. It this weird manipulative thing of like, okay, hiding yourself, fitting in, being cool so that I'm not on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly like what you were saying. Like, I think we figured this out very early as a survival strategy. Yeah, you got it. And it's not like the standpoint of I want to be cool. It's I don't want them to know I'm gay. I don't want them to know I'm queer. I want to fit in. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar to what I went through. Right. So my brother and sister were both and we went to big schools, homecoming king and prom king. But I mean, but, I mean, seriously, this was our family. And I was the guy who rode the coattails of people who were uh, people who were popular. And then I ended up with winning homecoming prints. And instead of being like, I was all excited and nervous about it. But then it, there was this deeper voice that told me like, no, they won't like you. Right. Anyway. And it was 
an interesting place to be, right? But it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about when you were talking the current generation of LGBTQIA plus individuals, because back then, I, the Stonewall's identity erupted because it had to, right? When the identification of a group of people is no longer necessarily threatened to certain levels, it's threatened in other levels. What does that identity look like for those of us who are still healing from that old identity? And how do we intermingle with the new populations of individuals who are growing up in this culture, right? I think it's really interesting to see, especially as teachers, Luke, we are the ones who are going to witness not only much of the paths that we paid, but the way that inter- in the interactions of the youth are going to impact us too. Because yeah. I've had some individuals on the phone who have been 14, 13, 12, who have just come out to their families and are suicidal, right? Yeah. And I had a girl the other day on the phone who was just, I mean, was teaching me lessons over and over again. And it's all of a sudden my ears start popping off and it's like, this is the future of what we are going through as LGBTQIA plus uh, individuals. Yeah, it, it's crazy too, because I feel like I always hold on to the fact like, oh, Gen Z is the best. Like they're so inclusive. They're so great. Their parents are millennials. So it's going to be like no problems. But of course, there's still issues and there's still so much work to be done. And maybe it's overly optimistic, even though it has improved. But I think we saw data like one in six people are of that generation identify as queer, which is really exciting. <laughs> that's, um, that's that's Alfred Kinsey for you, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the interesting interplay of Alfred Kinsey in the 20, 21st century moving into the 22nd eventually is how those biologics are going to influence behavior, right? So what we see as the internalized part of our sexual schemas, right? How are they going to interplay into the emotional intimacies of who we choose to love? That is, and what we're seeing now is, and I think that one in six statistic partly plays to this, is that in a safe space, people can be who they choose to be and who they feel that they are already, right? We didn't have that opportunity necessarily, but even in the our age, we can still engage in those same paradigms. And it's fantastic. I've left myself open to loving somebody of a different gender identity, right? And that is something that is I'm working through right now because I didn't jump into relationships. And this is all coming out new for me. It's like who I love may be different than who I fuck, right? And it could be something completely off-putting where I'm like, are you kidding me right now? That, that right there is growth of our community, right? That we can love who we want. Although we have so much work left to do. Um, yes, I, I really believe that uh, we are headed hopefully in the right, right direction here. Um, something that uh, popped up to me um, when you were talking earlier about, you know, going through 55 different treatment centers um, were relapse and triggers. Um, a lot of people in early recovery, you know, as soon as they get out of uh, residential, that's what they're dealing with. They're dealing with the world hitting them again, um, dealing with these relapse and these triggers. Obviously, you've experienced that numerous times uh wondering how you handled that today 55 times <laughs> i mean <sighs> change is scary right i had a tough time in transition 
I had a tough time transitioning from different places. And reality is, is that when it was relationships around me, whether I was attracted to somebody, whether I needed to talk to somebody, whether I needed to ask for something, whether I needed to say no to somebody, whether I needed to say yes to somebody, those were my big triggers, right? Dealing with you on a daily basis was like dealing with me. And it was hard enough as it was. The ones that were on the outside, like where I used to use, all of those triggers manifested because of a relationship of some kind. And so what I had to do was break through what those triggers were. It's a building. But what was I in that building for? I was in that building to use. Wow. So you're telling me that if I just went and talked to somebody like I did in there, then I may be able to take that trigger away. Yep. But before, unfortunately, meth creates an impulsive pathway. And and most of the time I would see a building like that. I'd be like, oh, I'd follow the thought and I was gone. All right, Eddie, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I want to tell you how grateful that I am for each of you and the work that Pride Institute has done. It's no, it's no short way of saying that you both and Pride have helped to save my life. Oh, thank you so much, Eddie. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.